0: Speaking with uh, writer director Mark Nistico, whose new film Blue Collar Boys will have its premiere this Friday in Los Angeles. Uh, the film won Best Picture in the Micro Budget category at the 2011 Toronto Film Festival and Best Screenplay at the 2011 Hoboken International Film Festival. Um, but, you know, thank you so much for being here today, Mark.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Uh, my pleasure.
0: So, To start off, what what inspired you to write the script for Blue Collar Boys? What was so appealing about the story to you as a filmmaker?
1: Well, you know, the story's about struggle. Um, It's about a working-class family struggling to put food on the table. And the inspiration just came from witnessing that struggle, Um, especially the film's very topical to what's going on with the economy uh, today. And um, I guess it was just witnessing those stories and seeing um almost you know a loss of hope in these families. Um that's kinda what made me say, well I've gotta I've gotta tell story um I've gotta tell that story. I've gotta show that struggle so I could inspire endurance through mm-hmm. the economic times. Do you know what I mean?
0: Right. And it and it takes place in New Jersey and that's where where you're from, right?
1: Yeah. Um you know I've always wanted the film to to have a universal theme, and i and I always wanted it to I never really put it it has to be in Jersey. I never really put it uh, an exact city on the film. short, certainly it has a, a New York New Jersey feel, mm-hmm. right because uh, we shot on location uh, in that area. Um, but I really wanted you to be able to look at the film and say, This is my hometown. This could take place in my hometown, you know,
0: right. Just to have a, you know, I guess, universal appeal.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like the theme is is just an age old theme of um, of of struggle, right, mm-hmm. in classes, and um, so so we definitely never put a name to the town, but it's important that the town be close to a city. Um, so you could really feel what the characters are going through, and there's a lot of resentment in some of these characters. So, so yeah, the locale was important. Um, but again, it's it's it really doesn't have to take place in Jersey. But certainly, when you watch it, if you're from the area, you're gonna say,
0: "Oh, that's right over there."
1: Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, um, the you know the jewels that are, exist when you shoot on location. you know. So. Right.
0: Right. So now, this is, this is your uh, your feature debut, and I was reading in, from your other interviews and, and stuff about how you saved your money and, and wrote the script over a year. Uh, so, you know, you work your butt off for a year and everything finally comes together. What was going through your head on, on day one of Principal Photography? What were you telling yourself?
1: Uh, day one's always the toughest. Uh, <laughs> what I was telling myself on day one was different than what I was telling myself on day two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on day one, you know, I really. There's so much pressure, okay, so and you've got so much at stake. Mm-hmm. So at day one, I was just I'm I, I've known you know, people around me will tell you I'm very meticulous and uh and and of course that's kinda my approach to filmmaking is I I, I kind of have a a, a fine <laughs> little uh, microscope there on every little part of it. So my mm-hmm. on day one I was saying to myself, relax and and have fun and let everyone else have fun, because I felt like it was going to be such a hard shoot. We were shooting in winter. Uh, it was going to be such harsh conditions, especially with the outdoor, the exteriors, and being on construction sites. It it was it was like if we don't start this off right and inspire the cast and crew, um, to give them the courage to 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 endure this shoot, then. It's gonna fall apart. Mm-hmm. So that was day one. Yeah, day one was like, have fun and relax. Now, sure, certainly, day one got nothing done. So, <laughs> so my AD was like, you know, listen, uh, we only got one scene done here today. If if we don't pick up the pace, uh, we're not gonna finish this. So, so day two was different. Day two was like, all right, I'm ready. Let's get let's 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 be Mark. Let's let's get that microscope on everybody. And um, and it was really difficult to find the balance between those two perspectives but um, certainly by the end of the first week I think the entire cast and crew will tell you that we went from being you know a sinking ship a skeleton (laughs) group, to a well-oiled machine
0: and uh, how how many days was your shoot how long did it take
1: Uh, you know we we shot for about I think the number is, is 27 days, um, including pickups. Mm-hmm. but you know over the years you shoot, you shoot some second unit and third unit pickups and you might that number might be 28 days in the last like year and a half because you know the stu- you know the studio picks it up and they want this and that so but um, the key here was that let's say it was 27 days over a period of about um, two and a half months.
0: And uh, you wrote, produced directed and edited the film um did that become overwhelming or did that give you a better sense of control over the direction that you wanted to go and I guess talking about how microscopic and meticulous are I'm assuming that helped helped you feel more in control right
1: yeah it's both the answer is both on Mm -hmm. that uh you definitely have more control but it's a give and take because it's it becomes overwhelming and um you know some and one of the other interviews someone asked me this question and, and I'll just elaborate a little bit further here it it's really it's really about endurance and the way you get through it while you're doing everything like this because it's so overwhelming and you could get discouraged is is you stay close to your friends and family and and they're going to give you the encouragement that you need to continue because it's it, there are days where i was just for years when I've been working on this because I've been working on it for four years mm-hmm. where I was just like this is too much I, I I, can't do this anymore and you the tendency when you're producing and directing and and editing and writing it's you, you know you have to approach all four of those things as if you are four different people you know mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to do
0: you, you gotta wear different hats at different times.
1: And and the, it's it's about controlling your emotions because if you when what's so it'd be it would have been nice to have an editor, you know. <laughs> it would have been great if we had the money. Because what's that's the purpose of an editor. You know, the director is going to bring his emotions or her emotions from the shoot into the edit when you're looking at the footage. It's very important to separate that and um, have an objective point of view, so you know when I describe this it gets kind of it it sounds a little insane because you actually have to create two different people in your mind and have them fight against Mm -hmm. each other, you know? Because the, the editor is going to do what's best for the film and sometimes the director is always looking for what's best for the film, but in this case, oh I love what so and so did in this scene, that was so fun to shoot. Uh, we got to keep it in, and no, you you can't keep it in. You've got to cut it if it doesn't work. Right. right. So that's what the difficulty, the difficulties of that, you know. And of course, from the producing to directing, it's it's again, you know, we want everything. I want everything as a director and as the producer. You know, well, the the money's tight, so you can have everything. So so that's that's an interesting dynamic as well.
0: And uh, describe working with uh, composer Joe uh, Lipinski, Um, you know, I usually interview composers on my slate, but I'm not a composer, I'm a writer-director, so it's interesting to, I guess, talk to you about it from this side. Um, Why did you choose Joe for the film, and and what did you want his music to function in the film?
1: Well, first of all, Joe is is just an amazing musician. This guy, um, he's Canadian, Mm -hmm. uh, and he travels throughout uh, Ontario, and all the other provinces of Canada, but mainly Ontario and back and forth from New York City, just playing in multiple bands. Um, he's also a studio musician and he's just such a, such a, he's has such a wide range of talent. Um, Joe also comes from, like everybody else in the cast and crew of the film, uh, a working class town. He comes from St. Catherine's, uh, Ontario. What I thought Joe could bring, I had heard Joe play steel guitar on, on a composition that was designed for the film in terms of the source music, and it, it, it was just amazing, and uh, so I approached him and I, I said, had you ever scored before? He said, no. Um, but I wasn't really looking for a traditional score here. Um, music it, it operates in the film a little different than it would in a traditional score. Uh, there's very little manipulation um, of the audience through music. And it's if there is any manipulation, it's right on the cusp, right? So I, I thought Joe could bring just something unique to the to to the score that that a, a traditional composer wouldn't be able to bring. You know, he'd bring a knowledge of organic instruments, guitar and uh and and, and the working man's feel, of course. Mm-hmm. And he certainly did and he put up with a lot of my uh eccentricities. <laughs> You know I always thank him for it because I, I I experimented with a number of composers before Joe and I just didn't like what was going on and and uh, I was so fortunate to find him and he was so patient with me and and so eager to to get it right and he just you know he brought something that just didn't exist at all in my mind that just filled in any gap that we needed you know and it was just amazing I love the
0: yeah, it's it's amazing when when you're working on something and then the music comes in and it just adds a whole different layer that you didn't even realize it was there.
1: Yeah, and you know,
0: I had a I had a I had a mathematical approach.
1: It's, it's kind of how I like to describe the insanity that I had uh, written down about the score in my mind. It was so hard for a lot of these uh, composers, to, they were like this is impossible. It's not going to happen. Uh the score is interesting because um you know the the, it, the climax of the film doesn't take place at the end. It takes place about two thirds through the film, and uh, there's bookends in the film. Obviously, we go back in time, and this and that. So the score is very mathematical in terms of the instruments that are used, and the combination of instruments, and how themes are are introduced and then combined, and uh, and they all kind of culminate with with this climax that's two thirds through the film, and then that's when you hear the the complete quote unquote symphony coming together, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, how we made it work was I, I, I you know, I, I was approaching it the wrong way. I was saying, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want it all up to add up to this. And Joe said, Well look, look, let me write, let me write that and then we'll reverse engineer it. And <laughs> that was that was the genius of Joe Lipinski, man.
0: Mm-hmm uh did you give him a temp track or did you give him a blank slate
1: uh, i gave him i gave him mainly just reference scores from from movies he mm-hmm. referenced uh mainly grizzly man
0: oh uh, love it yeah
1: yeah I, I i gave him that i gave him that for for what i wanted from the guitar i think uh a lot of the guitar is is a lot of open space that's you know obviously there's some densities that that can that uh, uh, exist in the score, but mainly it's a lot of open space with the with the letting the, the, the tones ring. Um, <clears throat> and I got that from my inspiration for that, that I showed Joe, was, was Grizzly Man, and, and it's just amazing watching a musician, you put something on, they're like, oh, that's easy, and he just comes up with it on the spot, and it's like, that's exactly what I want. So, you know, Joe, this is astounding. To watch him do his work, and um, so I gave him that, and I gave him, uh, I gave him. There will, blo- there will be blood.
0: Mm, Johnny Greenwood, yeah. Yes,
1: you know, amazing score, and what we did with our score was inspired by what they did, uh, which was uh, the score in, in Blue Collar Boys is not just instruments, but it's tools used as instruments,
0: mm-hmm.
1: very subtly, and and I guess I was inspired. For that, through what they did with their, there will be blood. Um, and then I said, "Go," and he said, "Great." <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of the composers, they all work different, but I guess some people would have been afraid of that, just having such an open canvas. And Joe was just painting.
0: Yeah, you know. So, and now you want you you know, you, did, you did win an award for best film in a micro budget category. Uh, you know, being an independent filmmaker myself, just working on shorts, I've never done a feature myself. But what are some tips, the best tips that you can give to indie filmmakers who are filming on a micro budget?
1: Um. Well, I, what I could say applies to this film, and 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 I guess I'll preface this by saying you know each film's different, and and each process has to be different, but. W- what I knew going into this film and going into this time of making films where everyone can be making films nowadays mm-hmm. is that it, it's, it's a go big or go home mentality. It's, you know, you've got to make yourself stand out. And in the indie world, especially now that everyone has these DSLR cameras and you can just go out and film something, you really have to have just extraordinary production value because we're struggling to be seen and heard. And I guess that's my advice. My advice is, you know, find the balance between having just really big locations and big shots and and something that's going to say, this isn't just, you know, your backyard garage movie. You know what I mean? Right. Because a lot of times you see indies that are shot because they don't have any money and they have one location and, you know, they do their best to... to, to To shoot what they can with what they have, and what we did on this film, and I didn't as a producer, I I didn't yield on this, and a lot of my guys that worked underneath me hated me for this at the time because it was like a, it was was a general Mm -hmm. like it it was like we need this, go get it, and they would say we can't, we can't, it's impossible, so nothing's impossible. We need to go, we need to go, and it was just push, 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 move, move, move. We need a big beginning, we need a big ending, we need a prison, we need a church, that's a club, we need we need to shut down this town and do a big street scene. And as a producer, I guess that's my advice as a producer, right? You know, try to get it as big as you can so you could you can stand out. And then of course, you have to balance that because it's not just about big big movies and big explosions and, you know, and that's certainly not what Blue Collar Boys is about. But again, that's how you get um that's only half of it. I mean, from the production aspect, that's how you get people to look at it, you know, and say, oh, there, there, there's something here. Uh, and it goes across the board from locations to casting to, to, you know, it's just everything. Everything has to, you have to have that mentality across the board with every little part of the production. Mm-hmm. You can put it all together, you're going to come out with something great, and then the next step is... How do you get people to realize it's great? Because there's a million great films out there that no one ever gets to see, and it's the same mentality. We went to Toronto, and we we did occupy Wall Street before they did it. We were in Toronto last year, protesting as if we had lost our jobs in in the middle of Dundas Square, which is like their Times Square, um, and then we walked and and you know we marched through the uh, picket line there through uh, through the financial district. We went right through, uh, you know, all the venues uh, that you know were exhibiting films at the Toronto Film Fest. We made a huge buzz for the movie, painting the town uh, with just tens of thousands of postcards and posters, handing them out on every street corner. It's the same mentality. You, they're not going to look at you, so make them look at you. We when we blasted, uh, we took a, an anvil and. Uh, you know, with a sledgehammer, and when we were in the, in the, uh, in the arts district, I guess it's considered, uh, oh, I might be wrong on that. I'm not sure exactly if, if it's on the border of the financial district and arts district. But anyway, we blasted it so hard that we were clearing businesses, uh, for three street blocks, you know,
0: hmm.
1: lunchtime. And everyone said, you're, just is ridiculous. You're making a big scene. People are going to be upset. And I said, it doesn't matter if they're upset they're going to know about the movie. And, right. yeah. uh, and that was what got people to come to our screening. That's how we um, got on the radar, and that's how we got a lot of the press that we got from Toronto.
0: Wow, that's really cool. That's really cool. <laughs> um, so looking back all the way from starting this journey four years ago up to the premiere coming up, on Friday uh, what has been the most memorable moment
1: mm, that is so tough uh, you know there's so many memorable moments and they're they all just it you know it you have different emotions for every single one of them right, um, yeah what I can say about this film is uh, it's a personal piece and I did it for the working class and uh, so that they could see their lives on screen, and going into with that mentality, the most memorable moments for me are coming out of the screenings, especially Toronto and Hoboken, and and actually in Syracuse we had, which we 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 showed it last weekend. Uh, it, it, it's it's when these guys come out of the film and shake my hand and just are choked up and they say this is my life and um i could think of in hoboken specifically a guy that was my dad's age just this really gritty looking blue collar worker you know with the big hands and the big forearms and everything Uh, he just he's speechless he was choked up he was and he could he could barely talk he says you hit you hit me here and he points to his heart and he just thanks me, and he's he's like, thank you, and that that's why I'm doing it. That, especially for this movie, that's 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 the that's you know the reward because I feel like that's all I ever wanted for this film anyway. And now you have you, you you've got the idea that you've accomplished what you set out to do, you know?
0: Right. Well, now I guess uh, to wrap up. Uh, the interview, I usually ask when I usually interview composers, I usually ask them this from a musical sense, but I'll flip it and ask you uh, if you could direct any movie ever made with no disrespect to the original director, which film would you choose? Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> these are great questions. Uh, wow. Um, which film would I choose? <laughs> well, we, you know, I've gotta, I've gotta, I've, I've gotta pick a Scorsese film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everybody that knows me is gonna say, "What's wrong with him if he doesn't pick Scorsese or?" <laughs> uh, you know, at this time in my life, um, I I would do this is a, an interesting choice, but I would want to direct Scorsese's version of Cape Fear. Um. Because I, I've studied his career in film school, and you know, I just I, I don't like remakes, but I really like what he did with trying to um, throw back to the original, you know, especially with the score in that movie. And yeah, you got definitely in this interview, and uh, just I just think of, of what De Niro does in that movie and how Scorsese is such a you know, direct impact on, on all those actors. And then I think about, you know, how, you know, you didn't want to do the picture for so much. At this point in my life, um, I feel like when you ask me that question, I, I'm i going to say Cape Fear. It's not, I would have said it different, something different to you two weeks ago, but just going through what I'm going through with, with the distribution company and how things work and learning you know, this part of the business, I feel like right now, let's do Cape Fear. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I don't know. I can't describe it more, but there it is. <laughs>
0: Good answer. I love it. <laughs> well, Mark, uh, thank you so much for your time. It was a, a great pleasure. Uh, very insightful. Um, I wish you the best of luck and everything, and uh, you have my support, and uh, hopefully we get to do this again with your next next project.
1: Absolutely. I look forward to uh, you know, hearing everything and uh, staying in touch and appreciate you giving me the opportunity to speak with you about the film.